Please remain, remain standing as we read from God's Word. Uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you're with us. If we were to take a magical journey uh, out these doors and take a right and head into uh, the older building and, uh, and then head into the office that is shared by uh, both Zach Lee and Carl Brower, we call it affectionately the dorm room, uh, you would find all kinds of treasures there. Now, you'd probably find Jimmy Hoffa or something. Uh, I went there this past week and, uh, and just kind of walked through things. So I found books, you'd expect that. Uh, I, found, uh, I found computers, I found desks, I found chairs. I also found some things that you wouldn't expect. A mandolin. I found a mandolin in there. I found a, a rusted sheriff's badge for some reason. Uh, and I found a, uh, a tuba. There's a tuba in, uh, in their office. Uh, and there is just a pile of stuff that Tim left whenever he moved his office up into the Holy of Holies uh, upstairs. And so, uh, anyway, occasionally if you go into their office, you will find... Uh, a couple of bags of clothes or shoes. And, uh, and so uh, often, uh, frequently, uh, my in-laws will kind of donate some clothes to us. And so they'll clean out their closets. They'll give us some things. So my, both my brother-in-law and my father-in-law do this. And so I'll bring them up. We call it the, uh, the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And, uh, and so we'll take these clothes and look through it and see what we can uh, wear and so forth. And then inevitably... I'll go home and I'll be inspired to clean out my closet because I only need so many pairs of shoes or pants or whatever it might be that I have picked up. And, uh, and so a few years ago, uh, Casey, uh, who's my wife, and, uh, and her mom uh, and I were all at the mall. And uh, we're going to the mall in order to return something that, uh, that Casey had. And as we're returning something, we step into a store, Banana Republic, if you must know, and, uh, and I see a sweater there, and I'm a sucker for a sweater, all right? And so Jerry's a sucker for fishing shirts. I like sweaters, and, uh, and so I think they're swell. And, uh, and so uh, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to tell you a story about a sweater, and I'm going to get mocked by some of my friends that are going to mock me for telling a story about a sweater. I mean, how many sweater stories have you ever heard that are like page turners and so forth, you know? No plot of a story ever begins and ends with a sweater, but this is the story that I'm going to tell so it has characters, it's Casey, her mom, myself. Uh, it has plot, which is involving uh, the uh, purchase of a sweater. And then it has uh, this conflict that we reach at some point. 
Uh, and the conflict was, I see this sweater, I like this sweater, and so forth. And, uh, and Casey's mom says that she'll buy it for me on one condition. I know the suspense is palpable. You guys are on the edge of your seat about this. This is the conflict in the story. The conflict is, she will only buy me this sweater if I will get rid of the sweater I'm currently wearing. All right? Unbeknownst to me, while I'm in the dressing room trying on the sweater, she and Casey had talked, and Casey had convinced her to make this deal. Uh, the sweater I was currently wearing was about 17, 18 years old. I got it like my first or second year in college. So it had seen better days, and Casey loathed it. And, uh, and so, uh, resolution to the story, I made the deal. Took off the sweater whenever I got home, never saw it again. I have no idea what happened. Got burned in an incinerator or something like that. Uh, but the point of the story is, in order to get this new sweater, I had to take off the old sweater. I had to get rid of the old sweater. So what's the point of the story? You'd think there is no point of the story. It's a sweater story. There is a point of the story. This is the analogy. This is the imagery that Paul is going to use here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to use this imagery, what the Puritans used to call uh, the, the, uh, the work of sanctification. You know, sanctification. Sanctification is being made into God's likeness, looking more like God, becoming who we are in light of what uh, Jesus has done and who he is. And so becoming more like Jesus, this work of sanctification, the Puritans used to, to describe it in two ways. There's a positive side and a negative side. The positive side, they called vivification, that there are certain things that we make alive. There are certain virtues that we cultivate in our lives. And on the other hand, there is what we call mortification. Mortification, there are certain sins that we mortify. There are certain sins, certain vices that we have to crucify. So our passage this morning is picking up the imagery from last week when Jerry was preaching where it talks about take off the old man and put on the new man. And the way that we do that, are, there are these certain garments, there are these certain uh, attributes that we are to both take off certain vices and put on certain virtues. So let's pray and, uh, and then we'll dig into uh, the text together. First, I'd ask that you just pray for yourself, ask that the Lord would free you <coughs> excuse me, from any uh, distraction that you might have, that the Lord would make you intentive. Think of the psalm that says, incline my heart to your testimonies, open my eyes that I might hold, behold wonderful things in your word. Would you ask the Lord to do that? And then ask the Lord to do that for us collectively, your neighbors, those who are sitting in the seats next to you, whether you know them or not, ask the Lord would do that work in them, that you would, he would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And then lastly, if you'd pray for me, that the Lord would help me to be faithful to his word and empowered this morning. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity for us to, uh, to dive together into the depths of your word and to consider uh, the glories of what you've revealed to us, Lord, that we might apply these things to our lives by the work of your spirit, Lord, that you might help us to realize who you are and who we are in you. So would you help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. If you want to follow along there, we'll also put it up on the screen. 425 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So again, we're picking up the language of last week in regards to putting off certain things and putting on other things. We're to put off or to put away, it's the same word in Greek, put off or put away, 
the old self and to put on the new self. That's how our passage last week ended. And so now we're going to get into some of the specific vices that we're to put off and some of the specific virtues that we're to put on. It's kind of like if you were to tell someone, I'm a new man. That's the general statement. And then you begin to hallucinate the various ways that you are a new man. I got out of debt. I lost weight. I got married. Whatever it might be. So last week we saw this general command to put off the old and put on the new. So now we see these specific attributes that we're to both put on uh, and put off. So not only do we put off the old self uh, generally, but we're to put off these four vices in uh, particular. And as we put off these certain vices, so we are to put on these certain corresponding virtues. So we'll see this pattern come up uh, four different times here in our passage this morning, where he'll talk about the vice that we're to put on, the correspond uh, put off, the corresponding virtue we're to put on, and then he does something interesting in this pattern, is he gives us a theological rationale behind it. The reason that we're to put off this vice, the reason we're to put on this virtue, he grounds it in some sort of theological rationale. So we'll see this pattern of vice, virtue, and uh, theological principle four times over the next five verses that we'll be in. And so the first vice that Paul mentions is falsehood. The corresponding virtue is going to be speaking the truth. And the theological rationale is because we're members of one another. This is one of the reasons that we are to put off uh, deception and we're to put on uh, speaking the truth because we're members of each other. When I was a kid, I loved to lie. There was no rhyme or reason to it. I just relished. If you ever read... uh, uh, Augustine's uh, confessions, you'll, uh, there's a story where he, he stole a pear or he stole a fruit. And the reason that he did so, he said, it's not because he really wanted the fruit. It was for just the, the shame of it. There's just something about stealing that was exciting to him. In the same way, there was something about lying to me that was just super exciting. I just relished the idea of lying. And then I would find myself caught in these cycles of lies where I have to tell another lie in order to to protect the other and cover it up and so forth. So I remember very clearly one time, I was uh, eight or nine years old, we were visiting my grandparents who lived in Arkansas at the time. I'm in the kitchen, I'm making myself a glass of milk, and, uh, and I drop the carton of milk. All right, I'm old enough, I'm eight or nine years old, I'm old enough to know I'm not getting in trouble for dropping the milk. I'm not gonna get uh, a spanking or grounded or anything else like this for making this honest mistake. I'm old enough to be able to clean it up myself. I'm old enough, uh, certainly old enough to ask somebody for help, but instead I just stared at it and I listened to it. You know, it's got that bloom, bloom, bloom. And I'm I'm just listening to it, I'm watching it and so forth. And then I take off running. I just take off running as fast as I can. I run upstairs, I hide under my grandparents' bed and I don't come down until someone uh, is screaming because there is milk all over the place and uh, I think my grandmother had almost slipped on it. And then whenever uh, I was questioned about it, my parents gathered, my brother, uh, my sister, and I all together, and, uh, and I just adamantly said, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I knew there was no proof whatsoever. They didn't have nanny cams or anything like that back then. So I knew there's no proof whatsoever. I did not come clean about that for 10 years. 10 years later, I finally told my mom, you know, that time I spilled the milk, that was me. There was no reason behind it whatsoever. I just loved it. Now, fast forward from that story 15 years later. 15 years later, I I become a Christian. I get saved. I've grown up in the church, but I didn't love Jesus. Uh, uh, 15 years later, at about 22, 23, I come to know the Lord. 
And uh, in, in my kind of community group sort of thing, uh, we would have a game night. Once a month, we'd have a game night, and the entire group would get together, and we'd play a game. And one of the games that we liked to play was this game called Mafia. Some of you have played this game, some of you haven't. Uh, but anyway, the point of the game is deception. You're either a mafia member or you're a townsperson. If you're a townsperson, your goal is to save the town. If you're mafia, your goal is to kill everybody in the town. If you're mafia, though, you have to convince everybody else, I'm not mafia, so you can live, right? So the whole point is if you're mafia, you have to deceive. When people would ask me, are you mafia, I would just go, yeah, I am, all right? Because I realized that lying is no longer who I am. Now, I've grown since then. I don't think that lying in the context of a game is necessarily sinful, just like if you like pump fake in basketball. That's not sinful, although your purpose is to deceive somebody. All right, so I've grown to some degree in my theology of honesty, but the point is I realized something's broken in me. I used to love lying, and I'm no longer that person anymore. Whatever this propensity uh, in me toward falsehood and deception, that has to uh, die. That's what happened to me whenever I got saved. So if Jesus is the truth, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if God cannot tell a lie, we see this in the scripture, I should be passionate for truth. You should be passionate for truth if we are uh, in Christ. And not only that, but we should be passionate for the truth because, Paul says, we're members of one another. In other words, when we lie to each other, we're really lying to ourselves. When we lie to each other within the church, we're really lying to ourselves because we are members one of another. So let's talk a little bit about honesty within the church. For some of us, the concept of being honest and open in the context of the church is absolutely foreign to you. It would be like if you're a soldier and I tell you, walk right into that battle line and take off all of your armor or take off your shield and get rid of your weapon whatsoever. That idea would terrify you. The idea of being vulnerable, the idea of being uh, authentic, the idea of being genuine and honest and open about who you are within the context of the local church. The church is for anything except for honesty. It's for putting on your best suit and your best smile and everybody who asks, doesn't matter how you're doing, you say you're doing great or smile or whatever it might be. The church for some of us is a place to be fake. But for those of us, even those of us who realize that's a lie, that's not how it should be, even for us that are willing to, at times to be vulnerable and honest, I think we're still in danger of missing the point of Paul's command here. It might not be some sort of a George Washington, did you chop down the cherry tree? It might not be some sort of a blatant, outright deception. It's these little compromises on the truth that we might be guilty with especially in the context of confession. The, the place that I've most seen this particular passage abused within the local church is in accountability and confession, where a man will say something like, you know what, pray for me, I'm just struggling with lust. But he doesn't say he's actually in the midst of an affair, or he doesn't say I'm actually looking at things on the internet that I shouldn't be. It's this, this generic, ambiguous, vague sort of thing that we can all relate to or whatever it might be. We say, you know, my marriage could really use a little help. We're going through some hard times. But we don't admit the fact that we're talking about divorce, talking about separation, whatever it, uh, it might be. We say we have an anger problem, but we don't admit that we're oftentimes screaming obscenities in the parking lot of Arby's or whatever it is because someone's cut us off 
in line, there are these vague confessions of the truth. What Paul's talking about here is not merely the absence of a vice, not merely the absence of a, uh, of a particular type of falsehood or deception, but he talks about the fact that there must be the presence of that which is opposite to it. There must be the presence of virtue. We must speak the truth to uh, one uh, another. Unfortunately, the church is, I think, one of the most hostile places, to be honest. Many of us, many of us in this room have been hurt. We've been wounded by confessing struggles and hurts and fears. But here in this text, the Spirit is beckoning us, beckoning us to this new lifestyle where we're open and we're honest. Not so much because we trust each other. That's not the point. The point is not whether you trust me or I trust you. The point is, do I trust Jesus enough? Whenever Jesus gives me this command, am I going to trust him enough with my heart and be vulnerable and honest and open, even though I might get wounded in the midst of the battle? Let's look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So the second vice that he mentions is anger. The corresponding virtue in this passage is not as explicit as it was in the past one, but would include something like forgiveness or patience or compassion. And the theological rationale is going to be that anger gives opportunity to the devil. What's interesting about this passage, it's actually a, a, a direct quotation of the, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, uh, and so it is the, uh, the exact quotation of Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, which says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. So he's picking up this same, he's alluding to this same sort of imagery of be angry and do not sin. By the way, what's interesting, as in Ephesians, this quote from Psalm 4 comes right after a mention of lies. We just talked about lies. If you were to look right before verse 4 in, uh, in Psalm 4, you'd read this, verses 2 through 3. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call uh, to him. So there is this pattern between lying there and anger. So back to Ephesians. Notice that this begins with the assumption, if not the command, to be angry. It gives permission to be angry, if not an actual command. It says, be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. The Bible gives us permission to be angry. Anger itself is not a sin. After all, God gets angry throughout the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, you see God getting angry at, uh, at sin. Jesus, on a couple of recorded uh, instances, gets angry. We talked about this last year as we walked all the way through the book of Mark. In uh, Mark chapter 3, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So the Bible seems to commend this thing that's called righteous anger. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. In one of the commentaries I was reading for this sermon, I read this quote by John Stott, and I was just blown away by it because it hurts. There's something about this quote that doesn't feel right to me. It feels wrong. But he says this, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. There's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. 
If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Again, I read that quote and and it bothers me. There's something about it that I don't like. Even though I consider myself a biblicist and this is my ultimate authority, at the same time, I'm still infected by the residue of 21st century America and all of its kind of cult of niceness and so forth. The idea that I can't be angry at anything, I can't loathe anything, I can't hate anything, and yet the Bible says that we should hate and loathe and be angry at certain things. God, only, God gives us not only the right, but the responsibility for righteous anger, but not sinful anger. He says, be angry, but do not sin. So how do we tell the difference? How do we tell the difference between righteous anger and sinful anger? I think this is really important, especially because in the moment, all of your anger is going to seem righteous. In the moment, you absolutely feel justified in your anger. In the moment, all anger is going to seem righteous. So how do we tell the difference? How do we know that we're angry in the right way at the right things? So I'm going to suggest kind of a threefold uh, filter to help us kind of process through this. If you were to ever find yourself... Now, when you're in the middle of being angry, you never think about this threefold process. You never stop in the moment and go, oh, let me process through this anger. But at least afterwards, as you're reflecting upon it, or as you find yourself rising, anger rising up uh, within, you can ask these questions of yourself. Are you angry at actual sin? Or is it issues of preference? I've told the story before. I had a roommate uh, uh, after college, and this roommate uh, tried to exercise church discipline on me. And the reason that he tried to exercise church discipline on me is because when I would get out of the shower after showering, I wouldn't close the shower curtain. And so he actually tried to, like, go through the entire process of church discipline on me. The problem is that's not a sin issue. If I took the shower curtain and tried to strangle him, that's a sin issue. That's something that we can talk about. But the other thing was just a preference. So are you angry at something that's actually sin or something that is just a mere issue of preference? Secondly, are you angry that your kingdom and your will are being dismissed or that God's kingdom and God's will are being dismissed? In other words, are you jealous for God or for your own sake? And then third, is your anger accompanied by other godly virtues or is it accompanied by other fleshly vices? Is there the presence of other godly virtues as you're experiencing this anger, or is it filled with fleshly vices? Is it expressed in healthy, biblical ways? Is your response to anger, and uh, if your response to anger is isolation and bitterness, and you come up with these sort of intricate plots of revenge, that's a really good uh, sort of ground for concluding that you're not walking in the Spirit in this moment, that your anger is not righteousness. But if it leads you to prayer, if it leads you to loving confrontation, if it leads you to compassion, then it's more than likely righteous. So moving on here, what does he mean there? He says, don't let the sun go down. Don't let the sun set on your anger. What does that mean? This phrase is a Hebrew idiom. It's used in the Old Testament, especially for borrowing and returning some sort of a debt, something that you had borrowed or paying a debt or something. And as an idiom, since it's an, an idiom, it isn't intended to be absolutely uh, literal. For instance, if you want to test this, uh, there are certain parts of Norway where the sun doesn't set for three months, right? Now, does that mean that Norwegians just have permission to just stew and fester in their anger for three months? And as long as they confess, at the end of that three months, they're all good. Of course not. 
Otherwise, some of you would move to Norway, right? That's not what the text is saying. It's not intended as a literal law. For instance, let's say you're having a conflict with your spouse. It's 2 a.m. You've got a big presentation the next day. You haven't worked through the, uh, the conflict uh, entirely, and you decide to press pause on it, and then you pick it up the next day whenever you get back. I don't think you necessarily sin, but the point is, as, as much as you can control uh, to uh, reconcile things as quickly as possible, in general, the day of the offense should be the day of the reconciliation. In general, the day of the offense uh, should be the day of... So there are perhaps times where there might be an extenuating circumstance because it's not intended to be taken literally, but we should not make the extenuating circumstance the rule. If that's an overwhelming pattern in your life of ignoring and delaying and waiting and being passive as a response uh, to anger, then that's something that needs to be put off and you need to put on instead this uh, righteous anger that would lead you towards confrontation and love and humility and these sorts of things. So Paul's saying there should be desire to reconcile as quickly as possible. And the opposite approach for that would be to stew and to fester. There's a, a, a ton of places in the prophets and the Psalms and so forth where it talks about this stewing and festering and thinking and plotting in regards to your anger. And this kind of stewing and fe uh, festering, it gives opportunity or literally a place. Do not give a place to the enemy. It gives opportunity to the devil. What's that mean? You might think of anger as being a, a magnet. Anger is this magnet that attracts uh, the enemy, and it gives it quarter. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says this, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So when we allow anger to turn into bitterness... We yield a place in our heart and mind for the enemy. It's like allowing an infection in the body to remain untreated. But notice something I think that's really interesting is that anger doesn't come from outside of us. Anger isn't something that comes from outside of us. It's something that comes from within us. James chapter 4 says, uh, what is the source of the conflicts and quarrels that you have in life? It says, is it not this, that your members are at war with one another? Your passions, your pleasures, your desires, you desire something? Someone else desires something else, and those things are in conflict. So anger can welcome the enemy from outside, but it doesn't arise. It doesn't originate from outside of us. It's not, there's none of this, the devil made me do it. Anger originates from within. You get angry because of lust. You desire and do not have, so you get angry. You want to be alone, or you want to not be alone. You want a traffic-free commute. You want to get to work on time. You want the heat turned up in your house. Or you want the heat to remain off so you can save money. That, by the way, is the biggest fight that Casey and I ever had. I'll let you wrestle with which one of us wanted the comfort of warmth and which one wanted the comfort of money. But the point is, it's these desires, these different things that are in conflict within each other. That's the source of uh, anger. And so he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity or place to the enemy. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The third vice is stealing. The corresponding virtue is honest, hard work. And the theological rationale is to share with others in need. The context for this command in the first century would have been seasonal workers just looking to provide for their families. So don't think some sort of elaborate casino heist like in Ocean's Eleven 
or someone stealing the crown jewels or something like this. In, in this context, we're talking about someone who steals some grapes here, a loaf of bread there, maybe occasionally an ox or a sheep or something like that. But they're doing it to provide for their family because there's very seasonal work within the context of the uh, ancient Near East and so forth. And Paul says that the hands you once used to steal from others should now be used to work for others, and not just work, but hard work. The meaning of the phrase there in Greek, it carries the connotation of exhausting, wearying, hard, laborious work. The first time I was in Romania, I've told some of you this story, the first time I was in uh, Romania, uh, I was uh, uh, with a, uh, a guy who pastored five or six other churches. Most of the pastors over there uh, will uh, pastor multiple churches unless you're in a bigger city or something like that because there's just not the, the, the means or the funds to provide for them within one uh, church. And so what he would do is he would just uh, basically he'd preach in one church, he'd hitchhike to the next church. If he got a ride, the church service would start 10 minutes after he left the last church. If he didn't get a ride, it would start an hour and a half later, whatever it might have been. And, uh, and so they'd just ring the church bell. Whenever he arrived in the city, they'd ring the church bell. That's how the people would know, oh, pastor's here. And so then they would gather together and preach and so forth. And so I asked him as we were riding uh, uh, along um, between churches, I asked him, what's your favorite thing about ministry? And he said, my favorite thing about ministry is on Sunday evenings, I lay my head down on the bed, and I know I did absolutely everything I possibly could for the king today. And that stuck with me all these years later, 17-something years uh, later. The idea that he relished that hard labor for the king. And the reason that he says for our work is not just to provide for ourselves or our family, but also for the sake of the community. He says that you might have something to share with anyone in need. There's this social aspect in this command, in all the commands that we're talking about today. There's this social, horizontal aspect because we're members one of another. We work not only for ourselves and for our families, but also for the community around us. Probably in this context, talking about the covenant community, the community of the body of Christ, the community of the church, since we're members one of another. So for us to fail to help each other, as lying is lying to yourself, so for us to fail to help each other is like failing to help yourself. It's like if your hand is hoarding all the blood cells that your foot needs as it's bleeding profusely. It makes no sense whatsoever. It makes a mockery of the unity that we're supposed to experience within the body of Christ. So I, I, it's fascinating to see the way the early church uh, kind of dealt with needs within the body. The members sold their possessions. They laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles to be used for the good of the community. One of the most convicting passages in all of Scripture for me is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Think about the meaning of that phrase. How few of us probably, if we're honest with ourselves, think about, I'm going to give beyond my means of their own accord. And then this last, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. 
to us. There is this responsibility that the early believers felt for the community. That it's not something, they, they don't merely work for themselves, they work for the sake of others. There's this horizontal nuance to the way that they understood their responsibilities. So most of us, most of us aren't robbing banks, most of us aren't even stealing food in order to provide for our families, but we shouldn't be too quick to overlook this command as if we've grown beyond it. It's easy to justify working and living for ourselves as if we're not really a part of a body, as if kind of I have my own thing and I just kind of give out of the overflow to others to help them. I pursue the American dream rather than the biblical reality, justify a little thievery, hold back some taxes, I fudge an expense report or whatever it might be. But Paul's saying, neither the rich who steal from the poor nor the poor who steal from the rich are to be commended. What is commended and commanded is honest hard work that shares with others in need. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The last vice that he mentions in this list is corrupting talk. The corresponding virtue is edifying speech. The theological rationale is so that it might give grace to those who hear. When we think of uh, this vice, we, we probably naturally think of cursing or cussing, however you want to pronounce it, and that's certainly a part of it, right? Some sins are, are really slow to shed. Others are much faster, depending on where you are in sanctification. And each of us might have had different victories and experiences in that. Whenever I was, uh, when I was in college and so forth, I had a filthy mouth, just absolutely. There were no words that were taboo. Uh, the, the more socially unacceptable it was, the more that I relished it, kind of like that stealing of the pear or the telling of the lie or whatever it might have been. So I had this filthy mouth. I got saved... Uh, in, uh, in 2002, and literally, unless I'm quoting somebody, I cannot remember a single time in my life uh, where I have used those type of words in my everyday speech. There has not been one single time that I can remember, but there are a ton of other issues that I struggled with and struggled with and struggled with and still to this day struggle with. There are some sins that are quick to go away. There are other sins that are very fast. But you know what? Just because I don't struggle with, if I stub my toe, I'm going to say something like whoops-a-daisies or something like that. I'm not going to naturally be inclined to scream out some sort of obscenity, but that doesn't mean that my tongue is tame. That doesn't mean, it just means that I struggle with a, another manifestation of a difficulty in controlling my tongue. I speak too much when I should listen, whatever it might be. James talks about this. He says, only the perfect person can control uh, their tongue, and that's certainly not me. Now, this command where it talks about uh, no corrupting talk, but only such is good for building up, this command doesn't mean that we all should sound like Ned Flanders, that we all should speak in these platitudes and cliche, hey, diddly-doo, and that kind of stuff. It's not the way that it's uh, talking about us speaking. There's this sort of cult of niceness that you might have experienced in uh, contemporary evangelicalism where Christian speech is kind of diluted down to a lowest common denominator. The problem with that is that the Bible is not going to speak of uh, our words in that way. If that's how God expects our, his people to speak, what do we do of the fact? If you're reading the Old Testament, you read the story of Elijah and the prophets at Baal, and you see Elijah using sarcasm and mocking them, where uh, Elijah will say to the prophets of Baal, he'll say, scream louder. Maybe Baal is just in the bathroom. Maybe Baal is taking a nap. That's mockery. That is sarcasm. 
right? Or Jesus is often going to say things uh, like he calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you sons of Satan, you whitewashed tombs. Those aren't nice words, right? That's not Ned Flanders sort of talk or God with Job, when Job is making all of his accusations and God's response to him is mockery. He says, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So edifying speech, encouraging speech, quote-unquote Christian speech, is not necessarily squishy and sugary. Sometimes there needs to be a little salt. Sometimes there needs to be a little spice in addition to the sugar. There's never intended to be this sourness to our speech. That's what the phrase corrupting talk signifies. It points to something that's filthy or putrid, like rotting fruit. It's a word that also often was used of that decaying sort of thing. The idea is, if you wouldn't put something rotten into your mouth, why would you let it come out of your mouth? We should have this gag reflex to certain types of speech. But unfortunately, our gag reflex oftentimes is off because we've been swayed by culture this way or the other. We gag at things that we shouldn't and don't gag at things that we should. I have that problem with apple cider vinegar. Anybody ever gargled with apple cider vinegar? I did 15 years ago, and to this day, if Casey leaves the cap off of it and I walk through the kitchen, I'll dry heave <laughs> because I gargled with it one time, and it is the worst thing ever. It is literally like a form of torture. I think the, I'm going to contact the Navy SEALs about it or so forth. But there is this... Uh, gag reflex I have to this, even though it's healthy, allegedly, scientists say so, it's supposed to be healthy to kill infections and, uh, and so forth. So I don't know, go near the stuff, even though I, I know it has a purpose, unlike sour cream, which the dairy industry has just kind of put upon us as a gag or something like that. So Paul's command doesn't mean that we only speak in the language of inspirational posters and those kinds of things. It's not just niceness, but it does mean that our speech should be aimed at a goal, and that goal should be encouragement, the building up the body, giving grace to those who hear, even though grace is sometimes hard and it hurts, is when Jesus rebukes his disciples or parent disciplines their kids, which is why I wouldn't recommend if you're a parent that you say something like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Why? Because the standard is not niceness. What is niceness? Niceness is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. Niceness is not one of the the virtues. Kindness is. But kindness can be yanking somebody violently out of the way of an approaching vehicle. Niceness is not. Niceness beckons them with these platitudes and cliches and so forth. Plus, Miranda may give us the right to not speak, but God doesn't. He doesn't just simply say, if you don't have anything to say, don't say it. He says, you have to speak. We're to speak the truth to one another. We're to speak encouraging words to each other. We don't have the right to remain silent from a biblical Perspective. We're commanded to speak grace to each other and to speak truth to each other. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Does it mean that it make, we make him super sad and he just like sits around in a coffee shop drinking coffee and writing poetry or something like that? That's not what it means to grieve the Spirit. The word grieve there doesn't just mean to sadden. It means to insult or to offend or to vex or something like that. So we need to understand, when we speak of God, we'll talk about this in theological equipping uh, here in a few weeks. When we speak of God, we're always speaking anthropomorphically. That's a big word, fancy word, anthropomorphically. It's formed from two words, anthropos, which means man, and morphos, uh, which means form. We're speaking of God 
as if he is in the form of a man. So whenever we say uh, something about God's eyes or God's arms or God's ears or something like that, we don't actually mean that God has eyes or arms or ears. God is spirit. And yet we're using anthropomorphisms. We're using human language that kind of condescends to bend around the nature and character of God. And so whenever we talk about grieving his Holy Spirit, this is a familiar Old Testament reference, Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Psalm 78.40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in uh, the desert. So when it comes to God's feelings, he doesn't feel emotions the way that you and I do. I wouldn't say that God feels love. God is love and God loves, but he doesn't feel love. Feeling is something that can rise and fall. God's emotions do not rise and fall as ours do. There's something deeper and better about a being who just is love and loves than a being who feels love because that thing uh, can ebb and, uh, and flow. And so again, we'll talk about that uh, within the context of theological equipping here in a few weeks. By the way, this passage is also a, a, a proof for the personhood of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a him, not an it. He's not a force, but a person. Though he's not human, he's a person in the sense of having his own being and personhood and so forth. This too will be disgusting in theological equipping, but uh, we'll see over and over throughout the Scripture, in Romans 8, that the Spirit bears witness. He thinks. He intercedes for believers. In 1 Timothy 4, he speaks. In Galatians 5, he desires. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 12, he teaches and he gives gifts. So what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? It doesn't mean that we can lose the Spirit. We can't lose our salvation. We can't lose the Spirit in this sense. Losing grieving are not synonymous. In the context following the flow of Ephesians chapter 4, to grieve the Spirit, to insult the Spirit, is to demean uh, His work in regards to the unity and the reconciliation of the body. At the beginning of chapter 4, it says this is the work of the Spirit, to unify the body, to give us a sense of love for each other, a sense of harmony, a sense of unity within the body. So to grieve the Spirit is to work against that, to demean the Spirit by division and disunity and so forth. We grieve him when we divide the troops, when we divide the church, and thus make ourselves more susceptible to attack, as you would if you divided the forces, because the Spirit is passionate. Again, he's a person. He's passionate. He desires our joy and love and edification and unity. Verses 31 to 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The passage is going to end with this catalog, this list of vices and virtues beginning with bitterness. The word bitter there connotes this bad taste in the mouth, kind of like apple cider vinegar. And just like a bad taste in the mouth, bitterness is not something that we have to uh, actively uh, obtain. We drift towards bitterness. It's something that comes just naturally. If we're passive, there's going to come this bitterness. Think about the fact if you go home today and you decide, I'm not brushing my teeth anymore. In four, five, six days or something like that, you're going to find, man, this is really unpleasant. And then a few months, you'll find yourself in Dr. Steve's office to go and get some root canals and so forth. There is this natural tendency. 
If you're not actively working against it, you passively drift towards bitterness. The same thing happens uh, in our spirits as it does within our bodies. Some of the worst sins are not just things that we do, but what we don't do. The Bible speaks of sins of commission, what we do, but also sins of omission, things that we should do, but we've omitted, things that we're not doing. If you want to know what a church will look like, if it's not actively pursuing truth and kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and love, it will be filled with all of these other things, all of these vices. It will be filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. You want to know what a church looks like if it's not actively pursuing the virtues of the Spirit? It will look like the vices of the flesh. It's the opposite of a vice is not just the absence of that vice, but it's the presence of some corresponding virtue. As when Jesus says, if you drive out a demon but don't do anything in the meantime, what's going to happen? It's going to come back. It's going to inhabit it, and it's going to be worse than ever before. Nature abhors a vacuum. So does the human heart. It's not enough to simply put off certain things. You must also put on other things. This pattern of commission and omission extends beyond just sanctification. For instance, you might never hit your kid, but if you're never holding them, you're never hugging them, are they going to feel as loved as they would? Or if you want to get healthy, can you just get healthy by just stopping eating altogether? Just stop eating all the bad stuff. No, you have to also cultivate eating healthy stuff as well. You can't merely remove the vice. You also have to replace it with a virtue. In order to be spiritually healthy, we must put away bitterness, put away wrath, put away anger, clamor, slander, and malice, and also put on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And there's this social thread that runs throughout all of these garments. We've been talking over the past few weeks about uh, the fact that there, is, uh, there are these horizontal nuances to our sin. In- interestingly, if you were to walk up and down the streets of McKinney and, uh, and you were to run into people who weren't raised in the Bible Belt uh, and, uh, and to kind of don't think from a Christian worldview, and you just ask them, how would you define sin? If they would even know what that word meant, most of the time, if you're talking to some sort of really secularized American, what they will do is they will talk about social sins. They'll talk about these things that are horizontal, that have these horizontal aspects and so forth. They'll talk about injustice and murder and theft, uh, all of these things with social horizontal consequences. It isn't an offense to God, but simply an offense to our fellow man. For instance, what harm is it if two people who really love each other want to marry? Why should we have anything to do with that? It's this horizontal sort of thing. But in the church, we have the exact opposite sort of response. We've swung the pendulum to the other end Uh, by and large. We tend to uh, fixate and focus only on the vertical aspect of sin. We know that sin is an offense against God, but we often don't think about the social consequences of our sin. But biblically, those things cannot be divorced. We cannot divorce the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of the sin. Those things are married together within the Scripture. Sin is both vertical and horizontal. The great command is love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the other greatest command? To love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things cannot be divorced and divided. Sin is both an offense against the king and also against the kingdom and the citizens of the kingdom. So what Paul is saying here is to crucify the vices which are to the detriment of the community. 
Crucify any vices that are to the detriment of the community. Bitterness and anger and wrath and slander and clamor and so forth. And also cultivate virtues that are for the benefit, the edification, the building up of the community. Love and tenderness and kindness and forgiveness and so forth. And if you can't be kind to and tenderhearted toward and forgive those in the church, what hope in the world do we have of extending this sort of grace and these virtues to a dark and depraved world? Again, some of us have experienced anything but kindness and tenderness and forgiveness from church. For some, the church is the last place that you would go to expect those kinds of virtues. But biblically, it should be the first, the foremost. It's the storehouse for such virtues because this is the place where the Spirit of God is among us, as Dr. Steve led us out this morning. So this passage had me wondering, just as I was reflecting upon it and thinking about it, wondering and asking myself these questions. With whom am I bitter? Like, honestly, if I were to really wrestle with it, are there people that I'm actually bitter toward? If I saw someone today, would it ruin my day? Or if someone called me on the phone or sent me an email or whatever it might be, if I ran into certain someone, like, would it really bother me? Who am I bitter toward? Who do I actually avoid? Like, who do I go out of my way? Whenever I was uh, doing middle school ministry, like three years after I got saved, there was a guy who was just kind of a, a, a thorn in my flesh, just always opposing every effort that I had. Any idea that I had, he hated it. And, uh, and I got to a point, uh, again, I was really young in my faith, but I got to a point where I would just actively avoid him. Uh, like literally, he was walking here and I was walking here and I would go around him in order to avoid him. So that's the question. Who am I bitter towards? Who do I actually avoid? Is there anyone that I've slandered? anyone I've gossiped about, maybe not told an outright lie, but just brought somebody in that wasn't part of the solution or the problem itself. By the way, there's a blog we posted earlier this week about this called Going to the Source, the idea that we biblically don't have a world of options. The world gives you a world of options when it comes to if someone, uh, if you have a complaint or a criticism or a concern against somebody, you can go on Facebook or Twitter, you can gather all your friends together at a coffee shop invent all you want about them. The Bible gives you two options. You can overlook the offense or you can go directly to the person who offended you. We don't like that. We don't like those options. We want the third option. I want to talk about it in a prayer group. I want to talk about it with my friends. I want to talk to a pastor about it because someone's offended me. Whether it's, oftentimes it's not even an actual offense. It's just they stepped on my toe or didn't wave at me at the parking lot, whatever it might be. So is there anyone that I've slandered or gossiped about Where's my heart drifted away from love and kindness and forgiveness and grace? Where am I potentially harboring even the slightest hints of bitterness, anger, clamor, and slander? Those aren't rhetorical questions, by the way. Those are the kinds of questions the text is going to prompt in our hearts. So one last observation from the text before we begin to kind of wrap things up. The entire passage, verses 25 through 32, we talked a couple of weeks ago. We said there's this transition that happens in uh, chapter 4. Uh, between the first three chapters of Ephesians are indicative, indicative, indicative. An indicative verb is a verb that just indicates how something is. God loves you. It's just an indicative. You're not intended. That's not a command. Uh, An imperative is a command. And we see in chapters 4 through 6, there are these commands. The imperatives are always built on the indicative because we serve only as an overflow of what God has already done for us. And even our service is prompted by God and is enabled by God 
But anyway, we see this list of imperatives here in 25 through 32 where it tells us put off certain things, put on certain things. And we can't see this as clearly in English as we can in Greek, but there is this progressive, continuous element to each of these imperatives. There's this progressive, continuous element to each of these commands suggesting that this is a lifelong process. In other words, uh, there is no point that you'll fully arrive. What's really fascinating about this text is everything that we talked about here today somehow can be easily communicated. You go pick your kids up uh, from, uh, from preschool after this, and you can communicate the basic contours of what we talked about today. Don't lie, don't steal, uh, and, uh, and so forth. Don't get too angry and, and that kind of stuff. And yet, at the same time, us adults in this room, if, you know, if you've been a believer for 50 years, you're still trying to figure out, how do I apply this to my life? How do I wrestle? I still find aspects of, in my heart where there's deceit, where there's bitterness, where there's thievery, where there's unkindness, where there's clamor, where there's slam, slander, whatever it might be. No one here today can say, I've completely divested myself of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. I have already done that fully. I've completely covered myself with kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Just like no one ever buys clothes that they keep absolutely forever. I love that sweater that I had. It served me well for 17, 18 years or so, but eventually I had to get rid of it. In the same way, eventually you'll outgrow all of your favorite outfits. Likewise, Christians are continually, for the rest of their life, continually shedding the old man and growing into the new, and we continue to do so until the Bible says that we receive a new type of clothing, the type of clothing that doesn't wear out, the type of clothing that's been absolutely cleansed because it's this new body that we've received and this new spirit that we've received when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to be changed, to look more like your son. I pray that you would help us, Lord. You would help us to be a people who love the truth and hate falsehood, that love righteous anger but hate unrighteous anger, that love honest hard work but hate thievery and laziness, that love edifying speech but hate corrupting speech, that love kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and grace but hate bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and clamor. Thanks to be a people who look more like your son. Lord, help us by your spirit. We ask because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.